we let anyone at any brokerage connect in and we verify what you own. And if in this case, Tesla, you own a share of Tesla, even if it's fractional, we let you participate. So you can ask a question, you can upvote the questions of your other fellow shareholders. And then in this case, the head of IR at Tesla, Martin and Elon decided to take questions from say, and they took the top five for their Q4 and then most recently their 2019 Q1 call. And it's really cool to see That's that wild. Yeah. you're just every day, you know, five shares can, can jump on and ask a question. And this is, they're doing this ahead of the analysts. Welcome to the Tearsheet Podcast. I'm Zach Miller. We don't talk a lot about investor communications nowadays. As mutual funds and ETFs own massive amounts of stock, small individual investors are mostly sidelined. Tech company Say is trying to change that. The company's regulated business helps provide a better experience of investor communications. But through the unregulated part of its business, Say is turning investor participation on its head. Investors with just fractional ownership in companies can get their voices heard and their questions answered. On Tesla's last earnings call, using Say and a head of institutional analysts, CEO Elon Musk took an 18-year-old's question, he owned four shares, about whether Tesla would consider launching an insurance product. To the surprise of others on the call, Tesla hadn't only thought about it, but is planning to introduce insurance in the near term. Sometimes, individual investor participation is magical. Say's COO Byron Soros is my guest today on the Tearsheet Podcast. Byron Soros is the Chief Operating Officer of Say, and Say is an investor communications platform. We do both regulated shareholder communications we have an entirely unregulated side of our business where we let investors engage with the companies that they own in an entirely different way than just are you up or are you down and the transactional component that we're used to, but more of an ownership rights and an accessibility uh, to this side of investing that has really just not been available to most people for a long time. It's been very obfuscated, in my opinion. That sounds like a lot of fun. Um... You know, and one of the things we keep reading about in the press is that, you know, the, the passively indexed funds and big mutual funds who don't vote their shares, they control sort of all of governance, whatever. So it's not even worth it to, to vote your shares. So I'm kind of curious how, how you got into this business. Like, what, what was the origin story of Say? You know, the, the origin story, the founder of Acorns, Jeff, while he was at Acorns, experienced this as he was sending shareholder communications to the Acorns investors. And these are first time investors, people who have, don't know what an ETF is. When you ask them what they're invested in, they'll say acorns or if you say right. stash. Um, but it's an underlying set of ETFs. And then underneath those is just a big basket of securities, obviously, or of individual equities. And so when they started sending these communications, people thought it was spam. And they didn't know what it meant to vote, vote on what. And there was just a real lack of education around what could have been a really awesome moment to introduce this other side of investing. And so as he and Julio and Alex, the other two co-founders, started digging into this, they realized that, A, there was a business model there, and B, you could really flip this thing on its head and turn what was a compliance function into a product and marketing function and make it an actual user experience. So, and so then, can we talk? I'm yeah, sorry, go ahead. Cut you off. No, I was curious, like I, I'm, I'm kind of chomping at the bit. Like, so how does, how does it work? I guess both sides of the business, how do both sides work? When you purchase, and I, where I worked at Twitter 
um, went through the IPO there and I would get this stuff in the mail. But that's kind of how I came to it. So when I first met Jeff, he was like, you know, that stuff you get in the mail. And I was like, oh, you mean the stuff that I like throw away immediately and never look at? And he was like, yeah, that stuff. Um, so when you buy a security of any sort, an ETF or a stock or a mutual fund, you know, it's that company's regulated responsibility to get you there investment materials. So as an owner, you're entitled to get their annual report and then the proxy statement and the right to vote when that annual meeting comes around. So there's a whole sort of underbelly where the brokers are sending out overnight who owns what. And there's one big third party, there's Broadridge, um, who does most of the heavy lifting here. They pretty much have a monopoly. There's Mediant also. They take in who owns what. And then they're monitoring filings. And so at the right time, if you held the security on the record date, they'll send you an email or a postcard or the, the big packet in the mail, aka the stuff that typically goes straight to the recycle bin. And then if it's a vote, you have the opportunity to click and vote. And that's often on board of directors or the ratification of an auditor. And there are often shareholder proposals or management proposals that you can also vote on. And those are the more interesting things. And then business model wise, that's, there's a regulated fee schedule where the person sending the materials can charge. And it's not the broker that pays. Most people say, oh, so you know, Acorns or Schwab or Fidelity, but they're just responsible for it, for getting us the information on who to send it to. So it's the actual companies, Twitter, Facebook, Vanguard, BlackRock, who have to pay the fees to get the communications to their shareholders. Because again, they don't know who their shareholders are. The broker does. So that responsibility falls to the broker. Interesting. And, and so you alluded to this in, in sort of your introduction, but why do you think um, we've gotten to a point in history where, where people don't feel engaged in, in investor communications and aren't, there isn't a sort of a two-way conversation there. It, it just kind of push and, and, and people sort of feel, I guess, powerless maybe in, in terms of governance? Yeah, as much as technology has enabled, we, you know, with fintech in general, making payments, becoming an investor, you know, within just a few minutes of onboarding, which I personally think is amazing. People wake up, they're not an investor. They download an app, they connect their bank account, it rounds up spare change and voila, you suddenly are an investor. That's become really, really easy. But what I think it's done is it's created a, a sort of veil in between what it means to actually purchase an investment. And if you look back in the old days of shareholder meetings, people would go, they were proud, they would wear ribbons. It was an event. And Berkshire is still able to, to pull that off. And a few other companies with investor letters, it's, it's an anticipated event. But I think a lot of the ceremony around being an owner and holding a physical stock certificate is sort of gone. Sort of like the Peter Lynch, buy what you know type thing, where you're investing in the products you love and use every day. Yeah. yeah. I think a lot of people still do that. They just really only see it, though, as a, am I up or am I down? And then the ownership piece of voting is just you don't even know about it sometimes, especially if you're a new investor until six months later when that comes in the mail and you're like, oh, vote on what? So much of um, the, the push, the push, I guess, from companies is via um, earnings calls. And I know, I know you guys do some interesting things there. Um, 
are, do people participate outside of like sort of the institutional investor world? Do people participate in earnings calls? And I guess from your perspective, like what are you guys doing to improve, I guess, that experience? We're trying to get them to. It's really been an experience that's been reserved for the Wall Street analysts and sometimes the institutional investors. So with Tesla, what we did was we created, and this is outside of that regulated investor communications framework. So we have a couple of broker partners there, Drive Wealth and Acorn. So outside of that, we let anyone at any brokerage connect in and we verify what you own. And if in this case, Tesla, you own a share of Tesla, even if it's fractional, we let you participate. So you can ask a question, you can upvote the questions of your other fellow shareholders. And then in this case, the head of IR at Tesla, Martin and Elon decided to take questions from say, and they took the top five for their Q4 and then most recently their 2019 Q1 call. And it's really cool to see That's that wild. Yeah. you're just every day, you know, five shares can, can jump on and ask a question. And this is, they're doing this ahead of the analysts. And so on the last one, I, I want to get this right. I think it was an 18 year old investor with four shares asked the question about Tesla and would they ever consider an insurance product? And then to everyone's complete and utter surprise, Elon said, yes, we are, we have, we're launching it in a month or so, which spawned a ton of news articles. And then one of the analysts who followed up ended up asking about the insurance product. So I thought that was a really great illustration of how a few shares can matter when it comes to proxy voting or asking a question on an earnings call. You don't have to have a massive $100 million position to get noticed. And so for a company like Tesla, though, they were also sending a message to the investor community saying that, um, you know, you matter to us, right? I mean, it, 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 there was a message there, right? Absolutely. And you just alluded to it, you know, they buy what you know. A lot of shareholders, they're, they're the most ardent supporters of a product or service. I, I still do it. You know, I tend to just kind of go in and if I'm just kind of in a browsing mood, I'm like, oh, yeah, of course, I knew this company. I know this company. I'm comfortable. Their app is on my phone. Like I'm giving them money you know, on a sort of monthly basis in a subscription way. Why would I not also buy their stock? So it's nice to see some of the forward thinking companies who are starting to say, yeah, our retail base does matter to us. It's not just the institutionals. It's interesting because I, I feel like a lot of what you're doing is going against the grain um, from, from at least from our perspective at Tearsheet and our coverage over the past couple of years where, you know, companies are, some are forgoing, you know, kind of earnings calls. And, and now we're talking back, you know, hearkening back to w the way things used to be where an investor does have an empowered voice um, and it's technology that's, that's delivering that. Do, do you see it similarly? Yes, I wish a lot more people saw it as as we do. We've definitely heard feedback, though, that, oh, okay, well, we don't want to draw attention to this earnings call. What if we miss? Uh, we don't necessarily want to involve retail because we, we really just are worried about our analysts and our buy rating. Or, you know, we already take questions off of Facebook or Twitter. And, I mean, look, I used to work at Twitter. I love Twitter. But my response was, you know, those are not verified shareholders. And for all you know, they may be a, a, a bot of some sort. So it's not going to happen overnight. But I think we're in this moment in time where there is a shift to saying, 
our, our customer matters, our retail matters. And you see it. Companies are listening to what their customers are saying on Twitter, or they may listen to a petition. So we think of this as just sort of a very verified way of speaking to the companies that you own. Do you see some of the traditional players like sort of following suit as you're, as you're sort of breaking new ground? TBD. We are talking to some more traditional players, and some have even said, look, we're, this is a little radical for us. We'd like to see a few more Fortune 500 companies mm-hmm. use this before we follow on. And then some are saying, yeah, we, we, you know, we want to be pioneers here. We, we want to be in, out in front of this because uh, we know it's where, this is where things are going anyways, so we might as well go ahead and, and get moving on it. So I wanted to ask you also about fund holders. You mentioned before that you said, you know, you could own fractional uh, amount of shares to be able to, have, to participate. What about um, ETF and, and mutual fund holders? We actually allowed that. So we got the Lipper data from Thompson and we show you the composition of your ETF. And if you have Tesla ownership through a fund like ARC or QQQ, you own a fraction of a fraction and we let you participate. And of course we weight you accordingly. It's, it's proportional to what you own, but we wanted to enable that participation. And I think that's a really new thing for most people is they don't know what's inside their fund. If you're a target date holder or your 401k, like what's actually inside of it. I don't think a lot of people know and, and have ever looked um, and may, a lot of people, you know, what does Malcolm Gladwell call it? The curse of knowledge. You sort of forget that a 401k user just may not understand what a fund is or what's inside it. And once you start to break it apart and show that, there's an aha moment where they're like, oh, so I, it's Google and Facebook and all these other companies that I've heard of, just fractions of them kind of bundled in this fund. And so you're teaching someone about that aspect. And then you're enabling this participation. And you mentioned earlier the concentration of power with these stewardship teams at the the large funds like Vanguard and BlackRock and State Street. And these are teams of 30 and 40 who are voting on trillions of dollars of wealth. And so finally getting the, the underlying fund holder to actually be able to voice their opinion, show what their sentiment is is really interesting to us and we think something that everyone will be interested in knowing more about if we can pass that along. Yeah, I think that the the model that you're describing, the future model you're describing if say, you know, continues to, to grow is is somewhat utopian in the sense and I don't mean that in a bad way, where where, you know, people understand what they own. Um, they're communicating, to, they're communicating to companies, companies are communicating back to them. Um, things are more transparent. This is this is this is your vision, right? That's the idea. I mean, it doesn't, I think some companies see it as a threat, but it shouldn't be. And these are conversations that are going to happen anyways. Like I said, people are tweeting, they're signing petitions, they're marching in the street. There's, there's a two-way dialogue that can happen. It's going to happen somewhere. And we want to capture that on our platform and let those moments happen on say, because they're going to happen no matter what. Like the United Airlines guy getting dragged off a plane it just erupted a certain corner of the world or you know half just so many people had a had an opinion on that and it's one thing when a tweet goes viral but it's another thing when 
you have you know five percent of your market shares connected in and verified your shares and voicing their opinion on something and why do you think i'm curious from your perspective where you sit um we've been doing podcasts for for you know 10 years and i think we've done one or two episodes during that time on investor communications it feels there's been very little attention um being paid from the technology side to the space why why, why do you think that's the case? What are the market dynamics that, that cause that? Great question. <laughs> I think <laughs> to some degree, the monopoly incumbent Broadridge, who are, they're very good at what they do. Um, and they've acquired a few companies on the way, right? They have. I mean, they're, they're a company that not a lot of people know about, but they power a lot of brokerages. And, and it, there's a lot more than just investor communications that they do. It's trade confirmation statements, taxes, books and records pieces, corporate actions, class actions, all, all these peripheral services that brokerages need to run. They're powering. And I almost think that there was no need to, or there, there was no incentive to really innovate in this space. But you know, now that we're here, I've already seen some, some noticeable improvements to their communications. Mediant is another player that you know they service Robinhood. The Robinhood communications and voting experience has gotten a lot better. It really matches their brand, and you know, it's just one of those things that I think it took a long time to get to where we are, but we're at that tipping point where it's like, okay, this needs to catch up to the rest of the modern. UX that we're used to. Like, you can't have this beautiful, slick app where, I guess, if you, you become an investor in minutes or uh, Robinhood, you're trading crypto next to your equities. Like, that's a really nice customer experience. And then, you know, the, up, up until very recently, you're getting this very questionable looking communication that kind of looks like a fax was scanned in and then emailed to you or, or mailed <laughs> to you. Right. And, I just think we're at a tipping point and I think everybody now, whether you've been in business for 30 years or one year, you have to, to come at it like everyone else is coming at it with modern user experience and really, like I said, product marketing in mind and not just, oh, this is a back office compliance thing that we have to do. So, so I remember having the founders of the, the robo-advisors on when, when they were just launching. And you know, one, one of the major discussion points at that time was whether to partner on a broker-dealer or to build their own. And a few of them decided to go to build their own because they wanted to control the entire experience. Just like you were describing before, um, you know, they have a slick you know, you know, householding display, of trading display. But then when it came to, um, you know, brokerage, they wanted to make sure that the, the you know, the, the transactional experience and the reporting experience mimicked, I guess, their, their front end as well. And so is this something, though, that it, it doesn't feel like it's so ambitious that there's no way that those guys could get into this type of business, meaning it's way broader than their, than their business? Or I, I guess my question is, can someone else come at it from that direction? Yeah, they could. There's Drive Wealth is one of our partners, mm. and they are just like Apex, a sort of white label broker, you know, uh, Money Lion sits on top of Drive Wealth, one of the introducing brokers. Acorns did what you described where they went, they took the time to, to build their own broker, um, spent a couple of years on that. But then you have places like Matador who are on Apex, uh, Bumped, where you get a kind of a stock back thing like Stash is doing now. Stash sits on top of Apex. 
drive wealth is very similar to Apex. Uh, SoFi sits on top of Apex. Mm. They do not control the communications that go out. They, they have the ability to, I believe, work with their vendor to try to tweak them a little bit. But you're right. They don't have that full control. So Apex, they partner with Broadridge. Drive wealth partners with Say. There, there's Folio, who I believe services Elvest, and they are kind of an all-in-one. They do the communications and that brokerage operations piece, like DriveWealth and Apex. So, mm-hmm. yes, you could build it, but like what we've seen over the years, and and the reason that Schwab and Fidelity and Acorns and all these places don't do this is that it's actually quite a complex. Uh, plumbing and technology operation and there's a lot of manual work that goes into it too you know there's thousands of publicly traded securities there's thousands of filings per year several per company and then there's the special filings the special meetings and whatnot so you're keeping up with kind of a huge operation of tracking these and then sending out notices and then handling the incoming votes and sending those votes off to the tabulator so while i would say you know, technically anybody could go build this. It's, there's a bit of a, a heavy lift up front and then ongoing in a way. I mean, Broadridge has 10,000 people there. Uh, not that all those people are doing proxy operations and brokerage operations, but there, there's definitely a manual component to it. It's kind of unbelievable. A lot of information is transferred back and forth via email lists that we are now subscribed to. I know it sounds very old school wow. and it is. It is. The file formats are still, some of them, we, we have newer modern APIs, but you know people are SFTPing COBOL character-based mm-hmm. file formats back and forth. Um, That's wild. So it, it, it is wild. And so I think it's another reason you don't just see a lot of players here. It's, it's, it's not something someone wakes up and says, oh yeah, I'm going to go start a regulated shareholder communications platform that uh, services brokers with these old file formats. Interesting. It's definitely not the sexy side of the business and, and, and you're describing a pretty <laughs> exactly. intricate, intricate um, tech stack, I guess, on the, on the, on the back end. In the remaining time that we have, Byron, I, I, I'm curious to hear from you. You mentioned Elon, you mentioned United Airlines CEO addressing the, the guy getting pulled off the airplane. Can, can you give an example of how companies are using, say, um, to give voice to, to their shareholders and how I guess that feedback loop, I'm curious to hear that. Yes, there are times when they don't really have an option. So a shareholder proposal comes up and it makes its way onto the ballot. A lot of companies will try to prevent these shareholder proposals from getting on the ballot. It's considered micromanaging. They appeal to the SEC to say, look, you know, this isn't they don't know what they're talking about. We do. And sometimes they say, yep, you're right. And it gets thrown out. And sometimes it gets put on. There's a great example of the McDonald's one for styrofoam cups that didn't even get a majority of the vote, but it got enough. And McDonald's said, okay, we, we sort of see which way the wind is blowing here. We're going to get rid of styrofoam cups. There was actually one last year that was someone who owned only 12 Tesla shares got a proposal on the ballot to separate the chairman and CEO roles. Mm. And while that was overwhelmingly defeated, you know, people against the proposal, 99 to one, um, it it was an item in the news. And then it was the thing Tesla had to worry about. And it was the thing that Elon had to fret over. 
So it's really what I, I see it as more of a checks and, and balances kind of thing is that companies maybe were thinking they could just sort of act in a way like no one was looking or only a certain segment was looking. And I think what we're doing here is having more eyes and ears on at all times. And it's just going to have people behave in a little bit different way when, when you know that others are looking and you're being checked, um, not only by institutional shareholders, but by your retail shareholders who might also be some of your best customers. Byron, thanks for joining us on the Tearsheet Podcast today. Thanks for having me.